0: Hello, everyone. This is Rico, and this is Trex and Sci-Fi, your weekly dose of geeky goodness. Today is August 15th, 2021. This will be show 829. It's actually going to be a repeat repeat show, yes. Kind of busy this weekend, and uh, so, yeah, we're going to do that. It was going to be either a guest cast or a repeat show, and I think I found a pretty good one, I think, to play for you guys. So, this one's from almost... Ten years ago, so <laughs> it's a little while ago. This was put out on uh, June twelfth, twenty eleven. So yeah, a little more than two or ten years ago. I almost said two years ago. Why did I say that? Anyway, the the show that I wanted to repeat for you is a show that I did back then on the movie, the classic classic sci-fi movie, Blade Runner. Uh, so there's uh, there's a lot of reasons for this. I, I, I this movie is is a seminal kind of classic film. Uh, And there's also a new kind of animated show, kind of. I don't know why I said kind of. There's a new animated show coming to, I've been seeing it advertised on um, Adult Swim, which is on the Cartoon Network at night, uh, on the weekends, I think, maybe, just, I, I don't know. But anyway, there's a, and they've had some recent Blade Runner comics, which are pretty good, that I, I would urge you to check out, and of course, they did that sequel film a few years ago that I did uh, talk about on a podcast previously. Anyway, um, so this is from, this the show this week will be that show from uh, 10 years ago on Blade Runner, and that was show 335, if you want to just hear the original or However you want to do it or if you listen you don't even need to listen again. uh next weekend, my plan would be to do a regular show next weekend. It's gonna be a bit of a busy weekend again. I've been doing some cleaning down in the Rico cave. I'm trying to create a little more space down here and uh I, I got a, I think I've talked about this. I've got a storage unit that I put some stuff in. I'm trying to make like a kind of an arcade area um yes, Rick Moyer has inspired me <laughs> and by the way, there's a Rick Moyer song in this podcast, I think so. What do you know? Um, But, um, but uh, yeah, so, uh, but next weekend, uh, my, my plan is to devote the show. Even though I've talked about this series before, I want to devote the whole show to uh, a great series. That's got sci-fi elements in it called the wild, wild West from the sixties. Yes. uh, James West and Artemis Gordon and all that fun. Gosh, that's a, it's such a great show. So I'm going to do that next weekend Two weeks from now, we'll probably be a guest spot, and and then the week after that will be Labor Day weekend here where I'm going to do a live show. So that's kind of what's upcoming on the podcast, but anyway, that's enough of me blathering. This is a long show for Blade Runner. it's pushes two hours almost, hour and like 45 minutes or so, but um, without any further ado, oh, one last thing. Go see Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds. It, it's a great movie. It's only in theaters. No streaming for this one yet. Um but I really loved it. I saw it a couple of days ago. Really, really fun, really feel-good kind of movie. If you like gaming especially, you'll enjoy it. There, there's a lot in it uh, that it's kind of have a little bit of Ready Player One kind of flavor to it somewhat, somewhat, but uh, it's its own unique thing, and, and the last especially about half hour, man, it was just really loved the movie and uh, big recommendation, probably the probably the most fun I've had really in it, at seeing a movie uh, this this summer, I think. Uh, so, anyway, that's big recommendation for that one from me. But uh, anyway, here's the Blade Runner podcast. Everyone, take care of yourselves, stay healthy, get vaccinated, and all that good stuff. So, um, And if you want to support the show, e- patreon.com forward slash trucks and sci fi. So, here we go with a blast from the past, about 10 years ago. My voice will probably sound <laughs> less gravelly like Batman, you know, but uh, here you go with your Blade Runner show from 2011. Stay tuned.
1: Okay, Wi-Fi plus 3G, 64 gig. This one, this one! Oh, sweetie, $900? I can't wait to see the look on Kyle's stupid face when he sees my iPad has more memory than his. Eric, we can't afford that one. Well, you don't expect me to get the Wi-Fi only 16 gig version, do you? I think we need to get you a different brand, hon. They're a little cheaper. Mom, everyone knows that everything but Apple
2: is stupid. Here, look at this one. Toshiba Handybook. Toshiba Handybook? This says it does everything the iPad does at half the price.
1: Mom, do not screw me over again.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of South Park iPad action there because Rico got himself an iPad this past week. Hey, welcome to Treks and Sci-Fi, the the Applecast. No, 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 no. We're not going to only talk a little bit about it. But uh, what we're really going to be talking about on podcast 335 for June the 12th, 2011, is the uh, classic science fiction film from 1982, Blade Runner. Actually, it seems like in the last few weeks, last month or so, we've been looking at a lot of, uh, you know, kind of older, I guess, to a degree, uh, sci-fi films. We looked at Tron, uh, Jedi Jeff and I looked at that. uh, Cool movie from uh, the 80s uh, a couple of weeks ago. And this week, I'm going to look at the movie Blade Runner. Maybe I've been hit with a... uh, wave of nostalgia lately for some reason but uh you know let's not be let it not be said as they say let it not be said that rico is living in the past because he did get an ipad this past week and i'll talk a little bit about that on today's edition of treks in sci-fi so let's get to it Well, again, welcome to the show, everyone. This is Rico, your host for Treks in Sci-Fi, the weekly sci-fi geek, uh, Trek, and other movies and TV in the worlds of science fiction, entertainment, and fantasy. uh, Podcasts for you, uh, coming at you uh, uh, every week for almost six years now. Uh, Coming this September, uh, it'll be six years for doing the podcast. and. (laughs) It's been a while, so uh, it's uh, but each week I try to keep it new and fresh and interesting, and I and I hope that's that's working. Obviously, if you're listening uh, for a long time now, that's that's obviously I'm maybe doing a good job at that. And, and if you're new, welcome to the show, everyone. I, I hope this is entertaining to you, uh, and maybe you're even listening on TrekRadio.net, which you can find this show over there on Tuesday mornings. I think it is. Just check TrekRadio.net online, and there's a schedule there and all that. So, uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, uh, the last few days, I've been playing with my new gadget, uh, which is an iPad 2, uh, made by, of course, the Apple Corporation and some Chinese workers somewhere in China. <laughs> Shipped from China, since I ordered it online at Apple.com. I On the forum, I, I, I kind of kept this quiet. I ordered it maybe about three weeks ago, but if, obviously it took a while to to get it uh, shipped and, and over here. So I, I wanted to kind of make it a, a bit of a surprise. I've, I've been definitely interested in getting one for a while. Uh, there are some things, some uh, apps and stuff that I wanted to use uh, that you cannot really do if you just get a netbook or a laptop. I mean, that was the main reason to go that way rather than a netbook or a laptop. I'm, I'm certainly a lot more of a PC. I don't have an Apple. Um, I don't have an iMac or a MacBook my son has a MacBook, but uh, and I've had an iPod iPod for a long time, and I think they make good products. But I, I'm a lot more of a, you know, computer techie, tech head, geek guy that likes to, you know, do a lot of tweaking and changing and building and and all that. So so to, to for me to get something that's it's pre-built and very locked in it is a bit of a change and i have to say even the few days that i've used the the ipad the three or four days i've had it uh there are little things that that i find i i, I you know miss and i wish i could do stuff with but i, I realized that going in and, and it, of course it was mainly I, that i got it for little cool apps like heytel and, and you know being able to to quickly uh pop this device on and, and watch a little video or go on the web you know, nearly instantly instead of booting up a computer. And the portability of it, too. It's very light, of course. And and I'm saying everyone uh, probably listening to this show knows what an iPad is and looks like and, and maybe even feels if you've seen one in the store maybe you own one. But I really wanted a very light, portable device for around the house. So this serves that purpose uh, pretty well. I haven't, frankly, had a huge amount of time with it. I, I got it maybe midweek or so. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. Tuesday, I think. And, you know, during the work week, I I barely have a couple hours each evening to really get into it. And I always had other things going on. So I I spent a little time with it yesterday, tweaking it. Actually, Lynn and I went out to the Apple store, which was a madhouse yesterday. I wanted to get a case for it. I I, I got that smart cover, which I'm frankly not that big of a fan of it so far. I, I think it's kind of in a way useless. It, it does protect the surface, but I don't like the little magnetic catch on the side of it. I, I'm scared it's going to scratch up the surface a little bit, so I'm using it for now, uh, but I realize that they don't have that standard little leather folder kind of case. Uh, I had one. I was about to buy it, but then the uh, Apple Genius, or whatever they're called, uh, the people selling stuff that wander around that store in the blue shirts, She asked me, do you have an uh, iPad 1 or 2? And I said I had a 2, and she says, oh, that case won't work because it doesn't have the cutouts for the new speaker area and the cameras and everything like that. So I was a bit shocked that that there's no uh, Apple-produced case yet for this, except that little smart cover. Maybe they think everyone's just going to use that, but it doesn't protect the back, and it's not really a a real good protector. It's okay if it's just sitting at home on on your table or desk or whatever, I guess, but... uh, I wanted a better case, so I don't know what I'm going to do yet on that aspect. But the device is great. Uh, it's certainly the screen gets dirty uh, quickly. I uh, I think that I'll be cleaning it like multiple times a day if I'm using it a lot. But again, that's all expected with a touch device. I did pick up a little stylus at the Apple Store for it. I'm not super thrilled with the one that I got at the Apple Store. It's called a Pogo. I've got uh, the package over here for it, and this, trust me, I've got a lot of other things to cover, and and obviously the big subject of Blade Runner. So this isn't going to be the iPad show, but I had to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, anyway, I got this Pogo uh, capacitive touch uh, stylus that they, I, I don't know if it's the only one they sell at the Apple store, but it's not it doesn't work that great you really kind of have to push a little harder than i would think on the surface uh, of the ipad to get it to detect it and i know there are other styluses out there we've been talking about a lot of this stuff on the forum this week so i may try a different one for uh doing drawing and things like that on the ipad uh it's a little uh kind of bugs me maybe i don't know if i really feel like it maybe i'll shove it back in the box and take it back to the apple store sometime but it's scary to go in that place man there was just it's crazy in there sometimes, especially on the weekends, which is about the only time I have a chance to get over there. But it's, it's a cool little device. Uh, I, I think there are some little things that I'm sure I'll be learning over the next few weeks, better uh, techniques to do things. I've been actually trying uh, one of the things I was working on a little bit yesterday and and even this morning, just a brief amount, was to get my website, uh, treksinsci-fi.com uh, and, and a bit thing of things on the forum. To work with some of the flash video there from youtube that's that's embedded in stuff around you know there's obviously a youtube app and again without getting into too much depth on this youtube has uh converted a lot of their stuff to html5 now instead of flash but that requires you to go through either the youtube app interface or to code it slightly different on your uh your sites and wordpress is what i use on the main trex and sci-fi sites so i had to get a uh, something called, uh, I think it's called iFrame uh, uh, YouTube Embedder. It's a little plugin for WordPress that allows me to embed, and that works good for, for stories and articles. So if anyone out there has WordPress websites, uh, there are posts that I've been putting up on the website on the forum about this. And I got that kind of to work, but I'm having a little trouble with the forum embeds uh, currently still uh, to work with that. I know other browsers, I was looking this morning, I know there's other browsers you can get for the iPad that, that sort of have workarounds for this. One's called Skyfire, uh, but I was hoping to get, get it coded so it would work okay with the built-in, uh, browser Safari on the iPad. So, and that's another reason actually why I got, uh, this device is I want to try to make my, uh, online content more compatible with iphones and ipads because a lot of people are, are using those devices now to to access the web and look at things and if uh, they get to an area or a website that doesn't seem all that compatible they might get a little frustrated and not, not like it so i try to keep it try to keep things up to date so they'll work with all that so I need to uh, take a break from the iPad talk, but it's cool. It's a neat device. Uh, I, I could definitely see they still have some room for improvements. I still think it has; it should have better resolution on the screen and better sound. But those are kind of minor things, and I'm sure each iteration of the iPad they'll improve it more and more. Probably, I'm sure the next one or the one after that I'll want that, and and maybe that this will become like one that I'll give to Lynn, where she doesn't care about all that as much, and then I then I buy the next version. Who knows? So. I'm going to take a short break. I'll come back with a couple of quick news stories and then we'll do Blade Runner. But during this break, I've got a it's a pretty lengthy uh audio clip. This is from our friend Kenny in California. Kenny finally had a chance to see Star Wars in concert and uh this our you know this audio here is is some of his uh Uh, review and commentary about that experience so take it away kenny i think it's about nine or ten minutes long and i'll be back uh maybe not even really do many news stories maybe one or two and then we'll get into the movie blade runner
3: hey rico it's kenny from california i'm also the host of knights of the guild podcast and the mash 4077 podcast i wanted to send in a quick report on an event that i attended last weekend and i know you went to this also But I uh, I just went to Star Wars in concert. Uh, It had been here in L.A. I think it started here in L.A. a few years ago. And I missed it. And I was beyond bummed that I missed it. So when I heard it was coming back to the Hollywood Bowl... I was, you know, I I was making sure I was going to do it this time. So I had gotten tickets really, really early. Luckily, I have an American Express card, and um, they had a deal where you can get it like almost two months in advance. You can get your tickets. So I had my tickets. I was ready to go. Never been to the Hollywood Bowl. You know, I drive past it almost every day, but uh, never been there, so I was excited to do that. And um, it was was an adventure just to get there, but uh, I will... Not bored, uh, your audience, listening audience, with that. The event was incredible. Uh, I had two options. I could sit fairly close, probably almost a little below midway, but all the way to the right of the of the theater, or I could sit higher up, probably two thirds, but directly in the middle. Because there's so many screens and such, you know, and you're, unless you're watching the orchestra, uh, you're pretty much watching the screen, the video on TV, you know, on the big screens. So I opted for the one further back but in the middle and I'm so happy I did. It was some of the pri- I mean they were prime seats we were directly in the, right in the center of the theater. We had you know one big giant screen at the bottom and then two uh, on the left and the right of us. So we had some great, some great uh, seats. I was very excited. Uh, I took a, a buddy of mine um, I, who I work with on the guild and I was totally thrilled there were people dressed up. Um, on Fortunately, I, I because of the chaos of just getting there, I wasn't able to get into the museum. So I wasn't able to see any of the artifacts or any of the movie props or any of those things um, or the actual people. There are tons of people that are dressed up just taking pictures with um, fans. And so I really wasn't really involved with them either just because, like I said, I got there, I grabbed food, I got my seat, and then eight minutes later it started. So uh, I had very little time. But uh, I enjoyed the way they set it up. I love the fact that they were telling you the story of Anakin Skywalker. So they start at the very beginning with episode one. You know, that was really cool. Uh, Of course, Anthony Daniels, who plays C-3PO in the movies, he's the host of this. He's incredible. He's so charismatic and very charming and funny. And, you know, he, he was perfect for the host. And they started off with the Star Wars main theme, which is always, you know, always gives me chills. So that was that was really cool. And then they, what they did is they, like, broke it into pieces, and they would uh, title each piece. And then they would play a classical piece of music from the Star Wars soundtrack, and they would show video to accompany it. And, you know, it, the first stuff was obviously mostly prequel stuff. They started off with a sequence called Dark Forces Conspire... And that was pretty much the Duel of Fate uh, theme, which I love that piece of music. So it was pretty fun to to listen to it being played live from a, you know this great orchestra. And um really, really enjoyed that. The next segment, they did A Hero Rises, and that was about Anakin. So they pretty much showed shots, various shots of Anakin as a kid, and as he got older, um, and that was really cool. Then they did a, a segment called Droids, which was basically C-3PO, R2-D2, and the other droids. And R2 is my favorite character, so I was so excited for this segment. And then they had one called A Race with Destiny, and that was about the uh, pod racing Next, they had one called "The Faithful Love," and that was about Padme and Anakin. And of course, they're playing, you know, uh, Star Wars uh, part, song from Star Wars soundtrack. I don't know all the titles to them, but they were all recognizable for each one of these uh, segments that they had. Then they had "A Hero's Falls." and that was obviously anakin turning to the dark side and then they did an empire is forged and that was about darth vader and that's when the crowd really went crazy you can tell that this crowd definitely favors the original trilogy to the new trilogy Uh, but after that there was an intermission and about a 20 minute intermission and, you know, I kept wondering, because I knew that there were lasers, and I'm like, well, we haven't seen any lasers yet. You know, maybe maybe the way the Hollywood Bowl is, they wouldn't be able to do the laser show. So I was kind of bummed about that, because I'd heard so much about it. But uh, the first half was fantastic. It was mostly prequel stuff. They did show some uh, original footage, but it, it was basically all prequel but then, of course, the second half was basically all of the original trilogy, and they started off with a narrow escape, which was basically Han Solo, then a defender emerges, which is Princess Leia, and then they did um, an unlikely alliance, which is Obi-Wan Kenobi, and the cantina theme, which that was fun to listen to that being played live. Uh, that was pretty epic. And um, then they did uh, a Jedi is trained, which was a Yoda and Luke segment, a strike for freedom. And they did a bond unbroken, which was a Luke and Leia, you know, the fact that they're siblings. Then they did a sanctuary moon, which was indoor and the Ewoks, uh, a life redeemed, which was Vader. And then finally, a new day dawns, which was the throne room music from the end of uh, Star Wars, A New Hope. So it was, a, it was pretty epic, really, really cool. It was just fun to be. It was just a great atmosphere. Just to be there in the middle of all these Star Wars fans, just listening to to this gorgeous, gorgeous music that I've heard for years. I mean, since I was seven years old, I've listened to most of this music, and it's become part of who I am. So it was just incredible to see it being played live, along with the awesome videos. And like I mentioned previously, the entire second half was nothing but lasers. Uh, time to the music, and time to the video, and it, it, it was so... It was so cool, it was just so, so much fun And, you know, Anthony Daniels came out And he thanked the crowd And we all cheered and we stood And everyone gave the, uh, you know, the orchestra a standing ovation And it was great And then people started, you know, exiting the theater Started leaving a little bit uh, Standing up, stretching And then suddenly Anthony Daniels came back out And he's like, oh wait, there's someone here who wants to say Hello you know and so people are just kind of looking and next thing you know you can hear the rumble from the people in the very front who saw him the rumble and it rolled slowly back up the theater you know to where i was and then all of a sudden uh anthony daniels says you know i'd like to introduce you to the creator of all this john williams and the crowd went a buzzer I mean, it it was, it was, it was, I just remember looking at my friend Sean and we were just smiling from ear to ear. We were so, we could not believe our luck. I mean, uh, it was, it's hard to explain. It's one of those moments that you just, it's real but unreal and you're just like, is this really happening? I mean, he is the creator of most of my childhood love. I mean, he did E.T., he did Star Wars, He's He's done so many great soundtracks and and so many unbelievable movies and Harry Potter and, you know, you're like, that's him. He's down there. And then he did the most incredible thing. He actually led and conducted the orchestra for one encore song and he did the Imperial March and uh, it brought tears to my eyes because you're watching me master, the creator of all this music, Conducting the orchestra live in front of you with one of the most iconic sound pieces, you know, piece of music from from cinema history, the Imperial March. And it, it, it if the night was already epic, this just threw it into a whole nother stratosphere and it couldn't have ended on a better note. He did his one piece. The crowd went nuts and he looked truly appreciative of, I mean, because he was, he, you could just tell he was either shocked or just surprised or just overwhelmed by the, I mean, the, I never heard so many people scream so loud and there were lightsabers flashing and it's pitch black in this place. So all you see are these beams of light because there must've been, you know, I mean, they were selling these little cheesy lightsabers, but a lot of people bought them. So there were these beams of lightsabers going all over the place. It was, it was, it was pretty incredible And it's something that I will never forget. Uh, It will be one of those memories that I remember the rest of my life. It was something I'll cherish. And if you get a chance to see a Star Wars in Concert near you, even if John Williams doesn't surprise you and show up, the show is unbelievable and epic on its own. But with John Williams just finishing off that night made it beyond epic, and um, I just wanted to share that with you guys. Uh, it was a great experience, so much fun, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. So that's my report on Star Wars in Concert. Hopefully I didn't uh, drone on too long. I just wanted to give a play-by-play blow. The night was incredible, and I wanted to share it with all my Trek's and Sci-Fi family, and um, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Take care, Rico, and I look forward to listening to your podcast. See you later.
0: Thanks very much, Kenny, for that great report on, on Star Wars in concert. Yeah, I saw that last summer, uh, and uh, up in uh, Wisconsin, it, it was uh, it was great. I, I loved it. I, I'd love to be able to go again, and uh, that was so cool that you got to see John Williams there. And, and you know, I was I was super impressed with with that. I think they uh, they do a fantastic job. And you know, one of the things I thought when I saw it was. You really never, uh, I don't, I think it was one of the first times you get this full sense of what the whole saga is about, you know, in a way. In a, in a fairly compact couple hour format where it's this tale of Anakin Skywalker, his sort of, you know, starting as a boy on, on Tatooine and then growing up and, and falling to the dark side and, and his redemption through his son and all that good stuff. I think that that was really uh, a great way to put that, put that together. You know, they could have just thrown random music at us, and we would have probably eaten it up and loved it, too. But the fact that they tried to c- connect it all into this story arc, I think, added so much more emotional depth to it, I think, that it wouldn't have had if they hadn't done that. Anyway, I just while I was listening to your comment, I was just checking the website for Star Wars in Concert. And I'm not seeing, uh, unfortunately, I'm not seeing any more new dates for this summer. So I'm not sure what's going on, if it's not going to be around at all ever again, or if it's just going to be a very, you know, select times and dates like you saw at the Hollywood Bowl, or what's happening with it. So, it, it you know, I, I really hope it does swing back around or they do more of it for people who haven't had a chance to see it, or even people like myself who'd love to go again and take Lynn and, you uh, because she likes those movies, and I know she likes the music, so uh, I'd love to be able to see it again here, maybe in Michigan or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad you got the chance to go, Kenny. You definitely uh, sound like you had a great time, so congrats on that. And uh, you didn't miss too much, I don't think, with the, um, the props and costumes. To me, I took some pictures of them when I was at the uh, show last year, but, you know, it was the basic stuff. There were some neat things to see, but uh, nothing all that amazing or or outstanding on that front. Probably stuff you've seen at other places and other conventions and stuff before. So, uh, anyway, let's move on. The uh, next thing, I don't really think I'm going to cover much news. There wasn't really a lot going on. Uh, I I checked the Trek website. There's nothing hugely new going on there. J.J. Abrams is still saying there's some upcoming news for the movie uh very shortly about you know a possible uh later release date who knows and a probably an announcement about if he's going to direct it or not which i really do believe it's going to be directed by jj he will direct and i believe it's still i don't think they can make the uh the due date of next june in 2012 i think it'll be either the end of 2012 or even in 2013 who knows if that'll happen but Hopefully, sometime in the next couple of weeks, we'll get some real confirmation about what's going on with the next Trek movie. But I do have one more thing to play for you. It's a real short, uh, spoiler-free review of the new movie that just came out a couple days ago. Speaking of J.J. Abrams, his uh, movie out for this summer is Super 8. So here's a comment from Will, uh, Will Eagle on the forums about that uh, cool new movie that I still need to see, hopefully, in the next couple of days. So take it away, Will
4: hello everybody this is will and I just wanted to make a comment today on the movie super 8 me the wife and my mother all went to see it today at the first showing at our local theater and we all really really enjoyed that movie it was just a good movie from beginning to end as you know the uh, from anybody that's seen the preview of the movie um, there's a train wreck and that was just very, very well done. Um, anybody that's a sci fi fan or just a good movie fan will like this movie. It cost about $45 million to make, runs about 112 minutes, but boy, does it go quick. Definitely uh, stay also during the credits at the end. Not t- at the end, but during the credits. And then uh, the movie was very well written, it was also well acted. I mean, the young actors in the movie were really, really good. And of course, you'll notice a few of the faces, uh, if not a lot of them. But definitely take the time to go see that movie. You won't be disappointed. Thanks a lot.
0: Well, thank you for that, Will. Uh, I'm glad you uh, enjoyed the movie. I think it's going to be, I think it's really one of those movies that's a little bit of a sleeper for this summer because it's a, you know, an original concept for a movie, not a sequel (laughs) and And those are few and far between, especially in this sort of sci-fi realm and geek realm of things for this summer. I mean, we have another Transformers movie. We have a a Harry Potter final movie. And and not that those are are at all bad, or I I definitely want to see them. And we've got some original stuff. I mean, we had Thor, which we haven't had before. uh, And uh, we did have another Pirates movie. And what else? We've got a new Captain, uh, Captain America, an original one, Green Lantern. But anyway, uh, I'm definitely going to go be checking out Super 8. It looks like a, a cool kind of throwback a bit of a movie. You know, it was supposed to sort of be reminiscent of the movies that Spielberg did in the 80s, like E.T. and those things uh, and, and that kind of uh, style. And it is set in the past. I think it's 19... 19- Supposed to be like 1979 or 80 or about when it's the the movie takes place. So I'll be uh, looking forward to seeing that. Uh, hopefully this coming week, sometime after work this week. Uh, let's get into a Blade Runner though. I'm gonna play to start us off to get us into that mood for this 1985 or 85, <laughs> 1982 science fiction classic. Uh, I'll play one of the trailers for the movie, and then we're gonna get into the the meat of the discussion on Blade Runner. One of uh, to me, uh, just a classic science fiction film. So here's the trailer, and I'll be right back.
5: I'm kind of nervous when I take tests. Take test. Four skin jobs walking the streets. Walk the street. They're either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. Not my problem. I'm Rachel. Deckard.
1: Have you ever retired a human by mistake? By mistake,
5: by mistake. No.
6: I need the old blade runner. Blade runner. This is a bad bad How can it not know what it is? If only you could see what I've seen. I've seen what I've seen, More human than human is our motto.
1: What if I go north? Disappear. Would you come after me?
5: No, you would, but somebody would. It's
1: too bad she won't! Really-
0: Early in the 21st century, the Tyrell Corporation advanced robot evolution into the Nexus phase, a being virtually identical to a human, known as a replicant. The Nexus 6 replicants were superior in strength and agility, and at least equal in intelligence to the genetic engineers who created them. Replicants were used off-world as slave labor and the hazardous exploration and colonization of other planets. After a bloody mutiny by a Nexus 6 combat team in an off-world colony, replicants were declared illegal on Earth under penalty of death. Special police squads, Blade Runner units, had orders to shoot to kill, upon detection, any trespassing replicants that they could find. This was not called execution, it was called retirement. Los Angeles, November 2019. And that's the way the movie blade runner starts out with that opening uh text scrawl or crawl across the screen and you learn uh what's going on in this strange rainy uh futuristic world of los angeles in, in the uh, you know far long a far flung future of 2019 you know about eight years seven and a half years from now the uh the movie Blade Runner, uh, of course, is based on a Philip K. Dick novel called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep that uh, I had it written down here. I think it was published in the 60s, but I'll look it up here when I take a break for a moment and, and play a clip for you from the movie. Uh, this, uh, this movie I saw, of course, when it was released in theaters, and one of the big attractions for this movie, of course, is the fact that it uh, stars Harrison Ford. Uh, Han Solo, Indiana Jones, uh, who at the time was extremely uh, uh, an A-list, top of the the actor food chain uh, guy. You know, this movie came out in 82. It would have been after uh, the first Star Wars film, after, uh, I was almost going to say Return, after Empire Strikes Back and after the first Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark film. So he was a, a super hot quantity at the time. And uh, they were, I think, fortunate to get him. I think he fits the movie real well. Let me give you some basic, uh, you know, kind of credits and and, uh, statistics and that kind of information at first here for the film. Again, it came out in 1982, June 25th. So we're coming up on, what is that, Uh, not quite uh, 30 years, 29 years since this movie came out. Did I do the math right? I think I did. (laughs) Next year in 2012, it'll be 30 years. That'll be easier to figure out. It's 116 minutes long, approximately, although there are multiple versions of this film out there, and we'll talk about that as we go on. It was made for us a relatively small budget. In fact, it was only $28 million. It did not gross a lot in the theaters. It had a little trouble at the theaters. It only grossed about $33 million. It was uh, The studios behind it were mainly The Ladd Company. It, again, is based on that uh, book uh, by Philip K. Dick, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, was a great, which is a great book to read and very interesting to read, especially when you compare it to the movie Blade Runner. The mu- music that I've been playing a little bit of so far throughout this is uh, by a group called Vangelis. Uh, I think that's how you say their name. Uh, it is uh, directed, of course, this movie is directed by uh, the director of the first Alien movie, uh, Ridley Scott, who I think is a, just a fantastic director. He's directed a lot of movies I've enjoyed. Alien, Blade Runner, Legend, uh, among some of them, and, and a lot of others as well. Uh, it's, I, I, Gladiator, I enjoyed that movie a lot. Not a sci-fi movie, but I think Ridley's a great director. He's working, of course, on a uh, Alien prequel uh, right now these days, so that'll be an interesting thing. Uh, what else do I want to say kind of here at the beginnings of this uh talk and discussion about Blade Runner. This is a very different kind of movie, I feel. A different kind of science fiction movie, and it's certainly not the kind of science fiction movie I think that you would get uh, in the year 2011 at the theaters. It's actually fairly low-key, fairly quiet it's a little. People, some people might even call it a little bit slow in parts. I, I love it. I think it's a great movie. I enjoy watching it. I've watched it when it was re-released in theaters a few years ago. I, I, I watched it last night and gathered some clips for the podcast. I've seen a couple of different versions of it and I have my preference but again we'll talk about that as we go uh, but the basic story is a Harrison Ford's character uh, Rick Deckard uh, he is a retired police officer in the year 2019 and they have uh, they sort of call him back in because you know it's one of those cases of he's the only guy that can get the job done he he has seen a lot of action he's he's kind of this You know, he looks like this sort of down-and-out kind of uh, retired cop that's just, you know, tired of the whole thing and wants to be kind of left alone. He actually says that when they come to find him, when trouble starts uh, and they come to get him and take him into the police station and to talk to uh, his old, I guess it's his old boss, about the situation and and that there's the replicants that they need this help with. He's just like, you know, guys, leave me alone. You got the wrong guy, and he he just doesn't want any part of it. uh, what else? The let me. I was going to talk a little bit about the casting and, and Harrison, but I think we're going to play start get go, get go <laughs> get going and playing some clips for you. So here's a an early clip in the movie Blade Runner, and I think this might be the the first guy being tested with that von Kampf, or however you say it that little device that they try to use. Uh, the voight Kampf, I think that's what it is, a machine which is supposed to, through a series of questions and and physical responses, is supposed to be able to determine whether they're dealing with a replicant or a human because these are like the, uh, they're kind of like in Battlestar Galactica where it's very hard to detect whether it's a Cylon or a skin job. So uh, this, uh, I think, clip is at the early stages where they're they're doing this test on someone. So uh, listen to this oh wait a second i'm not going to play that clip i'm going to just start you right into where they pulled deckard into the police station uh the the first clip i i decided we'll we'll skip over that so anyway here's uh, deckard in the police station at the beginning of or early in blade runner there was an escape from the off-world
6: colonies two weeks ago six replicants three male three female they slaughtered 23 people and jumped a shuttle an aerial patrol spotted the ship off the coast no crew no sight of them Three nights ago, they tried to break into Tyrell Corporation. One of them got fried running through an electrical field. We lost the others. On the possibility they might try to infiltrate his employees, I had Holden go over and run voight comp tests on the new workers. Looks like he got himself one.
5: So you look down, you see a tortoise. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? Know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing. Never seen a turtle. Well, I don't get it. What do they risk coming back to Earth for? That's unusual. Why... What do they want out of the Tyrell Corporation?
6: Well, you tell me, pal. That's what you're here for. What's this? Nexus 6. Roy Batty. Incept date, 2016. Combat model, optimum self-sufficiency. Probably the leader. This is Zora. She's trained for an off-world kick murder squad. Talk about beauty and a beast. She's both. The four skin job is Pris, a basic pleasure model. a standard item for military clubs in the Outer Colonies. They were designed to copy human beings in every way except their emotions. And the designers reckon that after a few years, they might develop their own emotional responses. You know, hate, love, fear, anger, envy. So they built in a fail-safe device. Which is what? For your lifespan.
0: Yeah, so Deckard is not too uh, thrilled with this whole situation, but uh, you know they're trying to basically twist his arm and tell him he doesn't have a whole lot of choice involved let's talk a little bit about the casting of, of more of harrison ford for this movie uh... it was uh... not uh... their they're actually their first choice at all uh... they spent months they had sort of a robert Mitchum type in mind for deckard and i've I noticed from reading the book uh... when you read the original philip k dick book Uh, that his personality is a little different than what's portrayed in the movie and and a little bit different than uh, Deckard's. He he doesn't seem quite so down and out in the book, I thought, and uh, I could see them picturing somebody a little bit uh, different than Harrison, perhaps, for the part. But I think he fits. still ends up fitting the the movie real well. But other actors that were considered for Deckard's character were uh, Dustin Hoffman was actually a big pick for them, he, uh, they, they spent a lot of time meeting with Dustin and trying to work out things and he was pretty close to playing the part, but eventually he walked away. He wasn't really uh, he didn't have an exact match with the director and the producers on how this movie should play out. So Dustin did not take the part obviously. And other characters and now other actors that were up for the character of Deckard, Gene Hackman, Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and uh, Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds, uh, a lot of pretty big name actors and, and all of them. I'm not sure if they met with all of those. That's just from documents in the production and, and records of, of possibilities. So who knows how close or how how many of those they actually even phoned up or had in or talked talked to any of them. Uh, but eventually they went with Harrison Ford, uh, primarily, of course, like I said earlier, he was very big uh, at the time, very popular, uh, and they uh, offered him it, and he took it. He was obviously, a, uh, like I said, a hot commodity, uh, but the big thing, one of the big things about this film that that's down in the records and, and Ridley Scott has said in interviews over the years, and even Harrison Ford has mentioned it is that Ridley Scott, the director and Harrison Ford really did not get along very well on this movie. They definitely had their differences. Harrison was, I said like a pretty A-list guy and Ridley Scott at this time was kind of the newbie, you know, on the block and, and that caused some friction and other things. They had sort of differences in ideas. Um, you know, they're you know, that's that's always true. I think with a lot of times when you have people that are really at the top of the game, sometimes they mesh real well and sometimes they don't. I guess over the time and over the years, Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford have sort of mended things a bit and, and they, they're pretty cool now. But uh, there's a there's a quote here uh, where Ridley Scott, I guess, in an interview uh, just a few years ago, would say, like, basically, who is the pain the biggest pain that you've ever had to work with? And and he said, well, it's got to be Harrison Ford <laughs> because uh, he, he, he but he kind of kind of actually gives Harrison sort of a lot of credit. He says, See, you know, Harrison's a very charming guy and he's also very knowledgeable about, uh, you know, the entertainment and acting and, and, and making of films. So that causes some friction and problems. And I can I can relate and understand that. Uh, you know because he's got so much experience he doesn't just come in and do the job he he wants to offer a lot of ideas and sometimes that doesn't go over so well and things don't work out but so that's one thing uh and i and i think possibly perhaps it can kind of add to the film itself because his character in this doesn't kind of want to be there and, and has having issues and difficulties and i think maybe be, because of some of the behind the scenes things that comes across in, in the movie too so who knows it's hard, it's hard to say couple other ones, uh, the roles of Rachel, who uh, eventually uh, was played by, and why am I blanking on her name, Sean Sean Young, right, and Pris, uh, played by Daryl Hannah. Those were a little tricky to cast. They actually had a different actor for Deckard at the time, Morgan Paul, who goes on to play the character of Holden, the other uh, uh, Blade Runner, Bounty Hunter, uh, that you see at the beginning of the movie. Uh, but uh, they had trouble casting those. They had some other actresses in, in mind at first for those characters. Uh, one character, actually, that, that was pretty easy to cast that, uh, that Ridley Scott wanted uh, right off the bat was Rutger Hauer. For playing uh, the main uh, replicant. Uh, they uh, wanted him for Roy Batty. Uh, I was about to say right off the bat. <laughs> but Roy Batty just, he seems perfect. And and I think one of the, the greatest things about this movie is that you have a very strong character uh, in Harrison Ford as the lead, but you also have a very intelligent, very strong, and, and just charismatic uh, bad guy in Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty. I think the two of them it, it's a good matchup and you know they don't have a lot really that where they meet up it's mostly near the end of the movie and uh, but again I think that that works real well I sort of compared a little to the Dark Knight film where you had a very strong actor playing Batman and a strong uh, actor uh, playing uh, you know Heath Ledger playing the Joker going against Christian Bale playing Batman I, I I find sort of that you know dynamic going on in this movie too so this, uh, this I think, really adds a lot to it. Uh, other characters, they had uh, a couple other guys. Cypher that you see in the movie. Uh, or, sorry, not Cypher, but the, the guy who plays Sebastian. Uh, they first wanted Joe Petalino. How do you say his name? Petalono, uh, who played Cypher in The Matrix. That's where I got Cypher from. He was going to be Sebastian at first, but they, they changed their mind on that. Uh, what else? Uh, let's see. Lots of things, uh, I guess, related to the casting. But uh, the biggest one that I wanted to get across was the the Harrison Ford one. And they had a lot of other ideas for who that might, uh, what actor they might go with, and the fact that Ridley and him didn't get along too well. <laughs> oh, we also have Edward James Olmos. I I, I should have uh, mentioned him even sooner. Uh, he has a, a pretty big part in this movie. He makes these little origami figures, and he's he's another Blade Runner cop and uh, he he looks quite a bit different than when he ends up on Battlestar Galactica later on in his career, but uh, yeah, Edward James Olmos, and f- why am I, I'm blanking out on, on what his, uh, Gaff, that's his character's name, Gaff, in the, you don't see it a lot, I, I think uh, Harrison Vent mentions him by name a couple times, but uh, anyway, Gaff, uh, played by Edward James Olmos in this movie, is is pretty cool, and you know, again, doesn't have a lot of dialogue. There isn't really, in fact, a huge amount of dialogue in this story, in this movie at all. And but even though uh, I still think, again, it's a great story. We will play though where there is a little dialogue, uh, a scene at the begin near the beginning again of the movie where Rachel uh, meets up with uh, Deckard.
1: Do you like our owl?
5: It's artificial.
1: Of course it is.
5: Must be expensive.
1: Very. I'm Rachel. Deckard. It seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public.
5: Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit, it's not my problem.
1: May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? No. But in your position, that is a risk.
6: Is this to be an empathy test? Capillary dilation of the so-called blush response? Fluctuation of the pupil?
5: Involuntary dilation of the iris? We call it voight comp for short.
1: Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell.
5: it. I want to see it work. Where's the subject? I want to see it work on a person. I want to see a negative before I provide you with a positive. What's that going to prove? Indulge me. On you? Try her.
0: Yeah, there uh, you meet Sean Young playing Rachel and uh, the head of uh, the Terrell Corporation, uh, played by Joe Turkle, who I think is a really interesting character in this movie. And Rachel, of course, becomes pretty important uh, to Deckard. Uh, What you find out is that she's sort of a new uh, version of a a replicant. She is uh, much more complex. She's, uh, you know, like like the, the, you know, just the ultimate in in their line of replicants and it takes uh, a lot longer for them to detect that and she's you know in in essence human and one of the things that they talk about in the film that they've done over the years with the different versions of replicants that they've made is they've given them a sort of memories and a background and a personality to help them adapt because they have such a short lifespan that they find out that uh, it causes a lot of issues if they just don't have any any memories to go on when they're created. So they, they implant more and more and get better and better at it to the point where, you know, the, they have this uh, phrase that they use in the movie, the Terrell Corporation, that they throw out there a few times that's called more human than human. The, the point being that they can make these replicants that are, you know, faster, stronger, uh, physically better than humans and eventually they're able to implant whatever memories they want so they can actually make them even, you know, from their mind standpoint even better, perhaps. Uh, they sort of remind me, too, also of the genetic-engineered, you know, people like Khan from uh, Star Trek. This is the idea, in, you know, to a to degree here, that these these are sort of created people, and people who create them try to make them even better than what they are. And, of course, that... You know, anytime you create something that's that's better than you are, look out! <laughs> it's gonna. Kind of, hey, why are you in charge? I should be in charge. You know, and and the, you know, even in that episode, Space Seed from the original series, you know, you, you create super supermen, you know, superhumans with superior abilities, both physically and mentally. It's kind of only to be expected and natural that they're gonna want to like, hey, maybe we should be the ones in charge. So that has sort of similarities to the story of Blade Runner uh, in the book and in the movie, of course, too. Let me play a, uh, the next clip for you right now. Morphology, longevity, dates.
1: Don't know. I, I don't know such stuff.
6: I just do eyes. Just, just, just eyes. Just genetic design. Just eyes. You nexus, huh? I design your eyes.
1: Sure. If only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. Questions.
6: I don't know answers. Who does?
1: Tyro. He knows everything. A real corporation. Big boss, big genius. He, He designed your mind,
4: your brain. Huh? Smart.
1: Not an easy man to see.
0: Yeah, that's when uh, the the replicants with Roy Batty and everyone, they meet up with uh, this guy named Chu, played by James Hong, uh, a, a great uh, Asian uh, character actor that you see in a lot, a lot of movies. He is, uh, they're sort of interrogating him, trying to find information about sort of where they came from. And uh, he directs them over to a guy named Sebastian, who's played by, uh, I mentioned earlier that he almost was uh, played by Joe Padalino or however <laughs> you, but anyway, William Sanderson plays uh, Sebastian, which I, I I really like the character of Sebastian in this movie. He's pretty interesting and pretty fun. Uh, but Chu is just like I just make eyes, I just make eyes, nothing else. So uh, they get him over to Sebastian, and that's where that leads the uh, replicants to uh, to investigate there a little bit too. What's let's see. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a couple other things. I'm not going to go pl- blow by blow through the plot. This is definitely a movie you should see. If, if you've not seen this movie, I hope you uh, would see it before I go <laughs> tell you the whole plot too much. Uh, but maybe that doesn't bother you. But it's been out like almost 30 years, so I'm not even going to say spoilers. But they move through trying to investigate the, the replicants, do trying to f- figure out where they've come from. Because what they're worried about and what uh, Roy Batty's trying to uh, uh take care of and and accomplish is the fact that these replicants, I I guess one of the ways they built, they did build into a a fail-safe in the replicants because they were worried about them revolting and uh, taking over things, but they had this four-year lifespan built into them. So, you know, even if they started to do things and bad things and take over or get, get free, they would only be able to live for, there was something genetically in their, in their code of their, of their bodies that would only let uh, let them live four years and then they would die. Uh, so, you know, that's a pretty short lifespan, and they, you know, Roy Batty wants to fix that. So he's trying to get to the point uh, and, and meet up with the creator of him and the creators of his friends, uh, like Pris and, and everyone, and, and find out, um, you know, if they can do anything about it. Yeah. Eventually, uh, Decker tracks down the Zora character. And she's working at this club, kind of with a snake, and it's a strip club place. And it's uh, he uh, discovers she, you know, that she's a replicant, and she runs, and Deckard ends up having to kill her. And that kind of then connects and puts uh, Roy Batty and Deckard uh, on each other's scent a little bit, and that is what leads eventually to their ultimate encounter. Uh, but uh, the next scene, I think, there is a, a point in the movie where. Deckard's kind of you know you know taking it easy. I think it's after the Zora scene, and he goes to a bar, has a drink, and Rachel for some reason has shown up at his apartment and kind of staying there a little bit. And uh, he uh, even though he realizes she's a replicant, I guess she's she's okay to be around the city, and since she works for Terrell and all that. But there's a scene I like this scene this next one where he calls Rachel up on this phone this video phone call between Deckard and, and Rachel tries to get her to come down to meet him at the bar and she's not really all that interested in that hello
5: I've had people walk out of me before but not when I was being so charming I'm in a bar here now down in the fourth sector Taffy Lewis is on the line. Why don't you come on down here and have a drink?
1: I don't think so, Mr. Deggard That's not my kind of place.
5: Go someplace else.
4: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen... Effie Lewis presents
6: Miss Helene and the Snake. Watch her
7: kick the pleasures from the serpent. Advance, corrupted
1: man.
0: Yeah, so she's you know doesn't doesn't want to go down and meet him there at the bar. Not her kind of place, I guess. Uh, one of the things else that, that I find uh, kind of interesting, is that there's a lot of things that they don't really explain in this movie too much. You know, the world seems to be a much different place. For example, you see a lot of animals uh, around, or not a lot, but the animals that you see, that you see an owl, a snake, they, um, they're all replicated. Uh, they're all not real. So you get this idea that some kind of natural catastrophe, maybe not natural, maybe man-made or whatever has happened, that has caused uh, a lot of the normal animals and wildlife uh, of the world to to have died off some, for some reason. Uh, and, and, you know, you always hear these stories about the, and not maybe stories, a lot of it's probably, you know, accurate that, you know, endangered species and, and as man, you know, pushes further and further out and takes over more and more, square footage and land area of the world that, that maybe we'll get to a point where a lot of animals will be, uh, you know, not around anymore, and they'll have to create, you know, replicate, uh, you know, replacements for them. It's kind of a sad idea. And I certainly don't think or hope, or not hope, but I, I don't think in, in another eight years it's going to happen. And, you know, the the other part about, uh, you know, what these replicants do is they go off into these off-world uh, very dangerous jobs in that. And again, even though this movie was made in 82, you know, 30 or so years in the future, uh, they thought we were going to be, you know, space travel was going to be good and we're going to be traveling around and gathering, you know, copper ore off, you know, some asteroid somewhere, some pretty, uh, wishful thinking, you know, sometimes I wish they wouldn't put dates on futuristic movies because eventually, I, I guess it doesn't matter a whole lot but, I, you know, almost be better to just say sometime in the future, this might happen. But I, I do love the atmosphere. I guess we can talk a little bit about the production design of this. A lot of different people worked on it. Douglas Trumbull, especially, uh, was behind a lot of the special effects, the head of that, uh, who worked on a lot of very cool movies. He worked on 2001, A Space Odyssey, he worked on Silent Running, a lot of, a lot of movies, Close Encounters, uh, big special effects guy in that, in that day and age uh, he worked on this. Uh, Sid Mead, uh, also, I think we mentioned him during the uh, Tron cast, he did a lot of the designs. They have a very cool vehicle that they use to get around a flying car in this in this movie called a Spinner, which uh, Harrison rides around a lot in to get from place to place, and it has the ability to take off kind of vertically, and then it lands, and then it can ride around as a car, too. Uh, really cool, cool vehicles in this movie. And it's very uh, techno and, and kind of uh, almost Matrix-like in, in some of the things that you see in this, in this movie. Uh, you know, it's very, a lot of buildings are, are super high and skyscrapers and there's a lot of metal and it's raining all the time and dark. And it, it's just a very, uh, you know, kind of post-apocalyptic uh, future that they show you in this film. And I I, I enjoy movies that have a very distinctive kind of atmosphere like that. It's not like you ever see one day where it's a sunny day in (laughs) downtown Los Angeles in the movie Blade Runner. It's always kind of dark. It's always kind of raining. And and that's just the way it is. Uh, But it gives it a, a, a nice little quality. And it's kind of like a throwback, you know, in a way. He's kind of a very, you know, detective gumshoe kind of Humphrey Bogart kind of character in this movie. Harrison is. Rick Deckard is. And I, I think the atmosphere adds to that quite a bit. So uh, let's play uh, the next clip. Let's see. I think we're up to about clip number, what are we at, five? Yeah, this is another scene between uh, Rachel and Deckard. And I, I think this is a good one. And I, I, I think one of the things that's neat about this uh, movie is you've got this retired cop who, for a lot of his career, has, has retired or killed these replicants, and he knows pretty much right off the bat that that Rachel is uh, a super sophisticated, but she's a replicant. But he doesn't have a seem to have a big issue with that. She kind of comes to him, in in a way, she comes to him in need, and and he kind of opens his door for, her, you know, both literally and figuratively, and lets her kind of stay at his place. and And their relationship, I think, adds a lot to the movie. I think they sort of have, kind of a need each that each of them can fulfill. And, and it isn't like a sex thing exactly at all. It, it's just a, a, more of an emotional connection, I think, that they have. And there's a little bit more to that. And I'm going to talk about that more towards the end of the movie. And that has to do with the nature of uh, replicants in humans and humans and Deckard in particular. So, But I'll save that towards more towards the end. Uh, but here is a clip between uh, some conversation between Deckard and Rachel.
1: Deckard. You know those files on me? The incept date, the longevity, those things. You saw them?
5: They're classified.
1: But you're a policeman.
5: I didn't look at them.
1: You know that voight comp test of yours? Did you ever take that test yourself?
0: Yeah, it's a good scene. I think Sean Young as Rachel in this movie is very good. She has sort of a ethereal kind of strange, sort of slightly non-human kind of quality to her that I think is interesting, and I think it fits her character pretty well. There's also a couple of times when I was watching this again last night, and I've always noticed this when I've watched the movie that the uh, the the characters that are the replicants in the film they all occasionally will show, or their eyes have this sort of weird kind of golden glow to them at times and you see that with uh Rachel I think in that scene and a couple other points in the movie with some of the other replicants that that Deckard is hunting uh which is a a neat little effect and it's obviously something people can't normally easily see because they have these you know this voight Kampf machine to really determine whether they're a, a, a replicant or not but I I like that little touch in the movie that they do uh there's a Another clip here that I've got for you that is a scene with, uh, I think, yeah, this is Sebastian. You get to hear a little bit about Sebastian. He is a uh, kind of a, a little bit of a genius. He's, he's worked for the Terrell Corporation, helping do things for them. Uh, but he lives in this weird little place. Uh, they used, uh, I think, part of what they used for his place here was uh, this, this neat little building. In out in uh, Los Angeles, called the is the Bradbury Building, was a filming location that they used, and uh, it, it's got a sort of a very kind of both older style and, and kind of a newer style to it that uh, it, it's just a different kind of building, and I think it's a pretty cool location that they use for this, and uh, I I like it a lot. So anyway, here's some of Sebastian with dealing with Roy and, and the other replicants.
1: Why are you staring at us, Sebastian? Because you're so different. You're so perfect.
6: Yes. What generation are you?
1: Nexus 6.
6: Ah, I knew it. Because I do genetic design work for the Terrell Corporation. There's some of me in you. (laughs) Show me something. Like what? Like anything.
1: We're no computers, Sebastian. We're physical. I think, Sebastian. Therefore, I am. Very good, Briss. Now show
0: me why. that's yeah, it's a good scene. There's also, uh, throughout this movie, if you've ever seen, uh, and, and again, it's a classic and, and probably a lot of people haven't seen it because it's a very old older movie, but it's been restored. Fritz Lang's Metropolis from the 30s, I think is when it was out, sometime in the 30s. Anyway, that's that's a, a movie that has a, a lot of similarities in the this built-up kind of urban world and environment that they live in with these huge buildings that that are just stories and stories high, uh, that I think they uh, used a lot of that kind of ideas and looks for the movie for Blade Runner, that you get to see here, and it's been a long time since I've read the original book for this, but I don't recall a lot of that look and feel for uh, you know the way Los Angeles looks in the future, to be all that apparent in the book itself. There was some of that, but they definitely went uh... in a direction i think it works i think for the movie it works pretty well but it's uh... it's it's really interesting the other thing about the the design and the production of this movie that i always liked is the the asian elements to it there's a lot of these uh... you know little uh, noodle stands that that decker goes and eats at there are these huge electronic sort of billboards on the side of buildings with you know pictures of asian woman woman uh... like hawking goods like coca-cola and other stuff it's a very Tokyo kind of looking and, and very uh, east looking, uh, the, this, uh, this world where everything's sort of built up so high because there's very little land space left is the idea that you get. And it, it reminds me also of Firefly. It reminds me of the future where, you know, because Asia starts to have a lot more influence on the world because, of the, you know, they have a huge population, a lot of other reasons, but even language and that. You know, in this uh, future world in Los Angeles, there's a lot of uh, things that are influencing that environment and world that are not, you know, typical like L.A. these days (laughs) does not look at all like this movie, that's for sure. So uh, things that change over the years makes it makes it look pretty uh, futuristic and different. So the next clip, this is with uh, I think uh, the replicants and Roy meets up with Tyrell or or Tyrell or however you say his name is Tyrell, I think and uh, he's not too happy with his maker.
1: Academic, you were made as well as we could make you. But not to last. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long, and you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things, also extraordinary
5: things. Revel in your time.
1: Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven for.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty uh it's a pretty nasty scene there i mean roy batty just basically just kind of like squeezes and crushes uh terrell's head and kills him because he's got no answer for him he's got no way to uh to stave off and and keep away the uh the you know their expiration date of four years uh let me talk a little bit about the the script and a few other little behind the scenes and we'll we'll play some of the last clips uh the uh Philip K Dick of course you know like i said wrote the original novel uh, the uh he was not really all that happy at first with this movie and the production of it it had been optioned many times in the past to do uh he was actually or Philip K Dick refre- refused originally an offer of like 400,000 to uh to write the novelization of the screenplay he's like well that doesn't uh, make any sense uh, one of the things that was uh, a little bit sad about this is, is, is Philip K. Dick. He eventually uh, was a little happier with some of the rewrites that they did, but he died just uh, a little before the movie came out. And they do have a dedication on the movie. The movie is dedicated to him. So uh, so that was kind of nice that they did that, uh, you know, considering he's the one that came up with the whole idea and everything that's in, in this movie and the concepts and, and where they got the uh, story from. So. Uh, next clip we're going to get towards the end of the movie now and then i'm going to talk about some of the other things related to it like all the different versions and some interpretations of the movie that that have been talked about in geeky circles for a long time uh the the movie kind of winds up with uh a fight and and a confrontation between of course deckard and, and roy batty and there is a basically eventually deckard finds out where they're at he goes in there and uh there's a scene where He's chasing, after, uh, he's chasing after Roy Batty and, and Roy just grabs Deckard's hand and, and his gun hand pulls him through the wall uh, and, and it starts to break uh, Deckard's fingers. So listen to this. Proud of yourself, little man.
1: This is for Zora. This is for Chris. Pris. Come on, Deckard. I'm right here, but you've got to shoot straight. Straight doesn't seem to be good enough.
4: Now it's my turn. I'm going to give you a
1: few seconds before I come. One, two.
0: Yeah, so that's uh, pretty nasty there. He's just, you know, snapping his fingers back and pushing them back. And then he, you know, he's pushing fingers back for the people that, uh, that Deckard has killed, Pris and Zora. So, uh, and then the the final scene, there's a, um, they go through a chase. And again, this is for people that have seen that you guys know this. If you haven't, well, I hope I'm not spoiling it. And You still got to see this movie. It's, it's something every sci-fi fan and geek has got to see. The Deckard almost dies. He he's on the edge of this building, and Roy Batty uh, could easily have knocked him off or pushes him off, but actually saves him. He he pulls him up, and it's 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 an interesting situation. They're kind of fighting each other, but in a way, Roy Batty I don't think is really he he's he's upset with Deckard, but he eventually just uh, realizes that there's no point I think to killing Deckard. And uh, then he gives uh, this little bit of a, a, a cool, very cool ending little speech that Roy Betty gives while Deckard's there just wondering how he, why he's not dead. I think he's got this expression of you know like disbelief like, uh, but Deckard's hanging off the, this like gargoyle on the edge of this building at the very high edge of this uh, tall, tall building and Roy saves him and then they go into this clip here. I've seen
1: things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> hmm. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the a Gate. All those moments will be lost. In time, like tears in rain, time to die.
0: Yeah. it's a great little speech there by Roy Batty. And, uh, then he just kind of dies and you see this dove kind of fly off into the distance into the, it's just a, a very kind of poetic scene and, and a great, uh, great moment, I think in sci-fi cinema really. And, uh, I love it. And it's, it's very interesting. There's a few things that I sort of g- skipped over towards, uh, or throughout talking about this movie that I, that I need to bring up now. I wanted to kind of save it more towards the end. Um, because there are this movie has probably more versions <laughs> out there uh, and, and cuts of it and, and availability of just about any other uh, uh, sci-fi or even any any other kind of movie that I even know about at all. Uh, there's probably at least uh, seven versions uh, of this movie around. Uh, there was the original uh, what's called the original work print version. I'm going through uh, some of the stuff on Wikipedia here for the movie. Uh, that was shown to test audiences. There was a San Diego uh, uh, one preview, sneak preview, only shown once in May of uh, 82. And that's almost uh, identical to the domestic cut, except it had three extra scenes. Then, of course, there's the theatrical version. And most of the clips I played for you, although it didn't really change any of them, I don't think, too much, but the theatrical version that came out in 82, 160 minutes long, also known as the domestic cut, one of the biggest things that was different about this movie is there were voiceovers by Harrison Ford. There was sort of narration and voiceovers throughout the movie with Harrison talking about, you know, what's going on and, and trying to sort of explain it to the audience because, like, we're I guess too dumb to figure it out for ourselves. The uh, a couple things about that: one, Harrison Ford hated that. He hated putting that stuff in there. He went. It literally kicking and screaming in to record those lines. He was under contract. He didn't have much of a choice, but he he was very opposed to that idea. It wasn't uh, originally going to be that way. He didn't think it was going to be that way, and then later on they decided, well, we need to put that in because people won't understand what's going on. And so they did the, the narration there. Uh, also, going through back through the other versions, There is something called the International Cut, which is also known as the Criterion Edition or uncut version. There's some more violent action in that one, uh, and it wasn't really greatly seen. It was also re-released in 92 as the 10th anniversary edition. There is a broadcast version that was broadcast on TV that was kind of—there was some of the violence, a little bit of the violence profanity, uh, some uh, brief nudity that was in this movie that was cut out for broadcast— and then in uh, around 91, Ridley Scott approved a director's cut. This, this was basically his vision for this movie. This uh, is makes some significant changes from the first theatrical version. The biggest one being, again, this voiceover narration by Deckard was removed. And he also puts back in a very key sequence in this movie. There's a scene where Deckard is at his piano. He's got a piano in his apartment where he lives, and he falls asleep, and you see him see this unicorn. Uh, I think Ridley Scott loves unicorns because he used them, of course, in the movie Legend, and it looks a lot like that. But Deckard has this dream of uh, a unicorn, kind of a very distinctive kind of imagery. And uh, so the uh, in this director's cut that Ridley approved, which to me is the version that I like and pr- approve of, and that you know this is the one the director wanted. And I think I like the I like it because it doesn't have all that voiceover junk puts the unicorn scene back in and there is a scene at the very end of the movie that that Gaff the, uh, the Edward James almost character leaves this tiny little origami unicorn at Deckard's place and that has significance in relation to that dream sequence of uh Deckard where he dreams about the unicorn because keep in mind and remember that replicants were they were uh, eventually able to implant memories into replicants so the uh, the idea is or the thought is if uh gaff knows what why does he leave an origami little symbol on deckard's doorstep there of a, a unicorn why why is he doing that well the idea is that's because uh gaff understands and knows that deckard is a replicant deckard is dreaming of unicorns why would deckard be dreaming of unicorns if those memories hadn't been planted and they were memories that gaff had access to and knew about now that's a pretty literal you know kind of interpretation of that i mean people could dream about unicorns just on their own and maybe gaff for some reason made a unicorn that day or for whatever other reasons you know you could come up with a scenario but I have a clip I'm going to play for you in a few minutes with uh, Ridley Scott talking about that. And uh, he, every, I, the thing I like about the director's cut version is that you you can leave it. You know, it's it's up to your own interpretation about what you think about the movie, what you think about this unicorn sequence, and and so on. There's also a final cut version of this movie. It's called Ridley Scott's Final Cut of Blade Runner. Came out in 2007. It's 117 minutes. And uh, this is the only one, really, that Ridley Scott completely had complete control of. In the director's cut, he didn't have complete control. It, it's pretty close to the director's cut. Not, not a huge amount of difference there. Uh, you know, the narration is gone and 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 stuff. There's also, and I'm going to play two different clips for you here. The first one is, uh, I'll play for you the, because uh, I've been playing mostly director stuff, I'm going to play for you the the directors of the final cut version of the final scene of Blade Runner where uh, Rachel and Deckard are basically getting out of town and he finds that little unicorn on his doorstep. I'll play the, the director's version of that with no narration and I'll be right back. It's
1: too bad she won't live but then again who does?
0: Okay, now next up, I am going to play the, the only part of this uh, for the clips that I've got that I'm going to play where you're going to hear a little of Harrison Ford's narration. This is the alternate, the other ending that was in the uh, original U.S. theatrical version. And one of the big differences besides the being narration here is you get to see Deckard and Rachel kind of driving off in the countryside kind of a, a, the first time, or the only time you really see son in this movie. And it's a much kind of happier ending. You know, in a way, than the uh, than the uh, director's or final cut version that Ridley wanted, uh, you get this sort of narration that everything's going to be all sunshine and roses and fine and dandy at two degree. But I, I still, again, prefer the director Ridley's version, where it just kind of ends, and and it's a little more amb- ambiguous. But anyway, here is the the narrated one that was in the theatrical original theatrical release.
5: Gaff had been there and let her live four years he figured he was wrong Tyrell had told me Rachel was special no termination date no how long we'd have together who does
0: Yeah, see, so you've got that real, uh, you know, cool music playing, and, and Harrison Ford's narration talking about Rachel and and Gaff leaving her there. You know, he left the little origami figure, but he left. He didn't didn't kill her, and, and retire her. So, so that's uh, that's you know some of the some of the differences between these different versions. There were uh, both Blu Ray and HD DVD big uh, sets that were put out a few years ago that collected a lot of these versions. I haven't checked lately. I don't know what the latest is out there. There's, You know, there's probably, a, you know, I don't even know if right now if you can buy, like, a set that has all the versions in it. Maybe you can. Maybe you can still Maybe that Blu-ray has most of those. Probably does the final cut and everything else, six or seven versions. To me, it really comes down to basically two really different versions. So you have the Ridley Scott director slash final cut versions that have no narration, have a slightly different ending and uh, and that and the unicorn scene too uh, other little changes but not a lot you know so you have um, you know the theatrical version with all the narration throughout the movie and, and so on and then uh, you know a different ending so those are the really major differences it's hard to go through every uh, scene by scene and cover it a lot but that's the biggest th- stuff i think and the things that are important i want to play one more clip for you and i'll come back and wrap this up and i've got uh, some comments i think one from brian and R- rick moyer to talk about blade runner a little bit but uh the last clip i've got here this is of ridley scott he uh, this is a little interview where he talks a little bit about this idea that that rick deckard that the the blade runner hero of the movie is actually a replicant himself so listen to this
5: When Harrison's on his piano
7: looking at all the photographs and wondering who these people are and what they're after he's drinking he's a bit drunk there and as he drinks you go off into the unicorn so it's a reverie the only reference right there to this abstract image which is a unicorn because at the end of it he comes out of his thought process and that never occurs again till the end of the movie because when he comes in that apartment he thinks that he's gone in
5: there and killed her because they know where she is and uh, when they come out there it is it's a unicorn and it means he's a replicant
0: yeah so I'm not I'm not completely sure how, how I feel about the idea that that uh... The Deckard is really a replicant. I, I have kind of mixed feelings about that, or different thoughts. For one, if he's a replicant, it seems like he physically is not uh, up to uh, these Nexus that he goes after. These Nexus Six replicants of the movie, uh, and and if he is a replicant, maybe he's a different type, uh, perhaps uh, you know. But it it also kind of you can kind of make a case, and it kind of makes sense that if you were going to create some people to go after. You know, rogue replicants that are that are better, stronger, faster, and that that you would create people. Not only would they, uh, it would be better because if they got killed in the you know line of duty, well, they just make another one. Uh, so who knows? It's hard to say. I, I can understand it being kind of a neat little trick where, you know, Deckard has become you know so human, and they have this line again throughout the movie, more human than human that he doesn't even realize what he is. And Rachel really doesn't realize that she's a replicant exactly either. So maybe they're both these super, you know, more sophisticated ones. Who knows? Maybe Deckard was a real human at one point, and he was killed, and they, they replaced him with a replicant. I, You know, again, the movie, without the dialogue, without that narration, is a little open for interpretation, and you can always think about it in your own way. It's something, you know, it's nice and it's fun, to have a movie that isn't everything is just neatly sealed and, and and compact and and everything's all explained, you know, to us, you know, Matt, the masses that watch these things, I, I I like that. I like the fact that it's just a little different. And each time you watch it, maybe you have a little different interpretation of it. Uh, but it's a great movie, Blade Runner. I could talk uh, another hour or two about it, like I do when I have these special podcasts. I think they uh, they tend to be like that. I I try to pick stuff that I that I. You know, I think is great, and and I, I hope that I've uh, you know given it a little different of spin, and maybe given you guys some other thoughts or ideas about what this what this is all about, and maybe if you've seen it, even uh, you got a different idea and interpretation of it. Now, what I'm gonna play next is I've got two clips. Next one up is Brian. I think he spends about five six minutes here talking about his love for this movie as well. And uh, so Brian, take it away and talk 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 to me, man. Talk to me about Blade Runner.
7: I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the darkness at Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. And that has got to be one of the greatest lines ever in a science fiction movie that makes you go, oh my God, I so want to see that. But you never do. And that's Blade Runner. I remember when Blade Runner came out, and uh, I was so excited to go see it. I mean, Harrison Ford in this great sci-fi-looking movie. And I remember being in the theater and just being totally blown away by the visuals. But I have to admit, Blade Runner is a challenging film. And as a teenager, I walked out of it going, Huh? I wasn't quite sure what I just saw, and I wasn't quite sure whether or not I liked it or not, but I definitely know I was challenged by it, and I definitely knew I wanted to see it again. Although, to be honest, you know, I don't think I actually did until it came out on uh, videotape. When it did come out on videotape, I watched Blade Runner a lot. Um, and in over the, over the years, I've really become to not only appreciate it, as a film, um, but as a visual experience and as a one of the star, uh science fiction films of all time, without doubt, but still it, it's it's definitely not the kind of movie you can just pop in and go for a wild ride because it it is slow it is purposeful um, and I think that's intentional you know you look at, at Blade Runner and so much about it is of its time uh, the early eighties. Obviously, there was a concern that the Japanese were going to take over the world and be the dominant political, economic uh, culture in the world, kind of like what we have, you know, nowadays with the with the Chinese. Um, You had uh, fears over global catastrophe and environmental concerns. And so Ridley Scott really played off all of that in terms of how he visualized the film in Los Angeles. In the not-too-distant future, where it's, you know, it's smoggy, it's raining all the time, there's refineries blasting fire and smoke into the air, the, the huge, huge influence of Japanese culture in Los Angeles, making, making it sort of feel like there is no longer an America anymore, that Los Angeles is overrun uh, by, foreign, by foreigners. And, uh, and you also get the sense that all of the people that could have already left Earth like with the uh, that the off-world blimp that sort of is floating around above Decker's or no above Sebastian's ap- apartment, uh, talking about the off-world colonies and how wonderful they are. Um, all of and, and all of this gets back to that to that quote that I read uh, said at the beginning from Roy uh, when he's about to to, to die. Uh, how the world is is this? So much has happened, and yet we only see the consequences in the film. We only see man's desire to create replicants to satisfy pleasure, to satisfy work, to satisfy uh, soldiery, to go out and fight wars and things like that. Um, and the consequences of that are, is, is sentient and these machines, the Nexus 6 lines that come back looking for the creators, looking for their opportunity to have a real life, a full life, a life of meaning as opposed to the shortened lifespan that they're forced to deal with and uh, and and having having that sort of playoff against Decker, who you know is is human or is he um, I always i 'm just going to go ahead with the the decker i know I'm just, I believe that Decker is a replicant at this point, although when I first saw the movie when I first heard that sort of postulated i didn 't want to believe it, I kind of wanted Decker to be. Human, But I'm, I've sort of come around to that, that he, he also is a replicant. But regardless, he's, he's sort of, if he's a human, he's lost. And he's sort of the one who's searching, uh, just like Roy and the, and the Nexus 6 robots that come back to Earth uh, are searching. And uh, it's a great ju- juxtaposition between the two, between each one of them going on this quest to try and discover themselves. And then, of course, how, how it ends out. It isn't a happy ending. It's not. It certainly isn't a feel good movie. Um, you know, again, visually, it's it's an incredible movie. I mean, really Scott really takes the idea of a dystopian future and that whole kind of truckers in space, dirty world that he created in the original Alien, and just rank just ramps it up to like a, you know to to another level in this movie, having the ability to create a whole whole city world. I mean, you almost could picture the Nostromo landing. Uh, in this Los Angeles, this is kind of the world that it almost seems like that that the crew from the alien, uh, from the Alien films come from. And and I think the movie really benefits also from just some terrific performances. I think Sean Young is great. I think uh, obviously Harrison Ford is great in it. I think all the ancillary characters, um, certainly Rucker Howard. Rucker Howard is just phenomenal in this um, and. Uh, Seeing Daryl Hannah and uh, the guy who plays uh, J.S. Sebastian, the guy who plays Terrell, obviously Gaff, who goes on to be Commander Adama, you know it's 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 a great cast and it's very well played because it's very underplayed and uh, everything is just very very subtle um, about all the individual performances and it uh, again it's it's a kind of movie where you can just sit, you really sit back and just watch what's going on with these people and so much of the story is. Is, a, is how these people are interacting and how they how they sort of perceive themselves in the world, that Rachel doesn't know what she is. And, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a movie with a lot of questions asked and not a lot of answers. So I'm really looking forward, uh, my man, to hearing what you have to say about this one. This is uh, certainly a, a classic sci-fi film and uh, one worthy of having a podcast dedicated to it. And uh, I'm sure you're going to touch upon all, all of the... Uh, all of the aspects of it that really make this one of the great sci-fi films of all time, albeit, you know, again, I said, as I said before, a difficult one in terms of just warming up to it. But, uh, I think if you do, I think if you give it the chance that it can be very rewarding and, uh, it's a good one. So, uh, listen, have a great show, my man, live long and prosper. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
0: Thanks, Brian, very much for your comments. Yeah, those are all great comments, great points to make. Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't say, and I completely, I, I, I just completely agree with everything you had to say, but a couple of things I didn't mention that much that I, I, I wanted to point out again, and I, I agree with what uh, your your comment said. Uh, one of the things is the performances. You're right. They're very, for the most part, very kind of subtle and low-key, uh, or, or just under whatever the actor term would be, but kind of under There's no over-the-top performances in this movie. They're all kind of underplayed and kind of subtle and kind of quiet. And, again, it it works so very well that uh, you know. I think, uh, you know what I would love to see sometime? I'd love to see Ridley Scott direct something Star Wars. (laughs) I would love to see that. I I might even like to see him direct a a Star Trek movie because I just think he's a fantastic director. I think he gets a lot out of the actor's. For uh, you know, people are always saying you know sci-fi and geeky films a lot of times don't have a lot of uh, humanity or that they're not really actors kind of movies. But when you watch a movie like Blade Runner or the first Alien or even the the Abrams Star Trek or some of the other Star Treks, I mean, I just think or Nicholas Meyer, I should say, when he directed, and even Nimoy when he directed some of the Trek stuff, I just think with a good director, I think these kind of movies do give you good performances with in the hands of Capable people, capable actors, capable directors. I, I think they can really show off that the these are strong themes, strong ideas, and and it's just again uh, a credit to Ridley and the actors of the movie that of how well they they came off in their performances, really really work well. And it, it's you know especially since Harrison Ford, I guess you know he and Ridley didn't get along too well uh, during the movie. So anyway, uh, thanks so much for your comments, Brian. Great to hear uh, hear your love for Blade Runner 2. Uh, not the Blade Runner Two, as in a sequel, just the T O O. Although speaking of that, there have been some comics. There are actually uh, some. There are some official uh, uh, novelizations, uh, not novelizations, but novels that were written uh, post. There's a Blade Runner Two, Three, and Four came out in '95, '96, and 2000. Let me see here. Written by a friend of Philip K. Dick, uh, K W Jeter. Uh, so you could check uh, see if those are available in print still. Check Amazon, maybe if they're out of print, maybe eBay, although they're not that old, 95, 96, and 2000. So uh, check that stuff out. Uh, I've not read any of that, really. I've, and there's been talked over the years, too, for either a prequel or a sequel. Mostly the talk lately has been about a prequel uh, idea, prequel movie to this. As of uh, just March 4th, just a few months ago this year, the io9 website uh, said that uh, uh, a guy named Bud Yorkin, who was one of the producers of the original Blade Runners, is, is trying to develop a sequel-slash-prequel to the film. Uh, it's hard to say if this is going to connect in or, or use Ridley Scott in any fashion. Uh, it's also uh, been reported that Christopher Nolan, the director, and, and, and the guy who, behind some of the, or the big uh, revitalization of the Batman films, Uh, that Christopher Nolan has been interested with Warner Brothers in the past to uh, direct uh, and and work on any uh, Blade Runner sequel prequels or anything like that. So who knows? Maybe we'll get another movie sometime. Uh, it's hard to say. Hey, I, I'm going to wrap it up right now, and I'm going to leave uh, you at the end here with uh, that. I, I'm going to thank him ahead of time, but I want to take us out here with uh, what Rick Moyer sent in his comments and his uh, new musical entry for uh, this uh, subject today, Blade Runner. So I won't be back after, but thanks, Rick, for what your, uh, you know, your, your great contribution is here coming up here in a minute. But I just want to preview a little bit for everyone. Uh, for the podcast in the next couple of weeks i want to just tell you guys what's coming up next weekend uh, i won't be here Uh, i am uh, taking a week off got uh, some stuff going on so we have got uh but we do have the the show will be here the podcast will be out and what you're going to get next weekend is a special doctor who show the current season of Doctor Who with Matt Smith is kind of a little bit on a break right now. They got through about uh, seven episodes. The rest is going to come back on in the fall, and we're going to get a, uh, a podcast with uh, Meds, Kenny, and Casey next week on Doctor Who. So that's going to be pretty cool. Looking forward to that. And then the week after that, which will be uh, June 27th week, June 26th, I guess, is the date. I'm going to look at the Enterprise episode azati prime which is from season three i think yeah so uh and that's during that uh whole long season three arc of enterprise so that'll be then and i'll update the schedule probably in the next week or two with additional uh stuff coming up for the month of july so that's what's coming up uh thanks everyone for listening to the show today uh you can always write me at treksf at gmail.com uh, or uh, just go to the forums, uh, put leaves up some iTunes reviews for the podcast, anything like that's always great. Donations, always appreciated and welcome. All that information can be found over at the main website, treksinscifi.com And, uh, well, I'm going to get out of here. Rick Moyer's coming up next with his comments and song, and I'll talk to everyone. I'll be back in two weeks. Next week, remember Doctor Who with our special guest group of Kenny, Meds, and Casey. So take care, everyone. And thanks again for this, Rick. Bye-bye.
2: Hi, Rico. This is Rick Moyer from Aberdeen. I'm so glad you got an iPad. Are you having fun? I know you are because I'm having fun with mine. In fact, today, instead of reviewing Blade Runner, since I haven't seen it in a long time, um, I'm just going to say that I watched it as a kid uh, or younger than I am now. And I thought it was a fascinating movie. Um, I think I was a teenager when it came out, and I thought it was really a fascinating movie. Um, There were some rough parts in it, um, but I thought it was really spacey and quite, I don't know how to describe it, just kind of mysterious. And it just was a really cool, very hardcore science fiction movie. And I thought that they did an amazing job on the effects and the music and everything else on it was just really, really cool. So I'm not going to Give an opinion as far as uh, well. I mean, I liked it and everything, but I don't. I don't remember the details of it a whole bunch. I'm gonna to have to go back and watch it because I haven't seen it in a long time. But I did write a song because you told me that the original name uh, that the that the story of Blade Runner came off of was "Do androids dream of electric sheep?" And so I did a mashup of a bunch of lines from the movie of uh, Blade Runner and I also did some vocals and different things and made a song called Electric Sheep. So here it is, premiered right here on uh, Tracks in Sci-Fi. Hope everybody enjoys it. This is called Electric Sheep.
5: I'm Deckard, Blade Runner. He say you Blade Runner.
1: Have you ever retired a human by mistake? Indulge me. Fiery the angels tell. Deep thunder rolled from their shores. Burning at the fires of all. It's not an easy like our owl it's
5: artificial of course it is must be expensive very we call it Void Tom for
1: short not an easy man to see
6: human.
5: are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. they're a benefit it's not my problem.
1: What's your problem?
3: 10.